And good morning again to all of you. If you'd known how much I'd be speaking to you this morning, maybe you wouldn't have come. So I'm glad we tricked you and you're here. Uh, if you're here for the first time or for the first time in, the in a while, just wanted to let you know we're in the middle of our summer series called What If This Netflix Series Was a Sermon Series? We're choosing different popular shows, choosing a theme from them, and seeing what we can take from that that is relevant to our lives as we walk with Jesus. When it was my turn to choose, it was a pretty easy choice. I was just old enough to be moving on from picture books when I came across Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables in my family's library. And when I asked if I could read it, my very wise parents tried to suggest that there might be some words in there that were too difficult for me to read on my own, and maybe I'd need to ask for help or choose a different book that was more suited to my reading level. Ever one to listen to reason, my response was, I'll show you. I can do anything. I'll read the whole series. So those of you who are familiar with the story and with Anne herself might not be surprised to know that I immediately found a kindred spirit in Anne Shirley, who is also not one to be told that she can't. More than 20 years later, this series is still a favorite of mine, and I still find myself commiserating with and relating to Anne's tendency to get herself into trouble by feeling things just a little too deeply, defending her friends just a little too fiercely, trying just a little too hard, and maybe being just a teeny tiny little itty bitty bit stubborn. Those of you who are not book people can meet this childhood friend of mine if you so choose in the Netflix series and with an E. Know, however, before you do, that this show adds many elements that are not in the books, is intended for a more mature audience, and merits a bit more parental guidance than the books do. Nevertheless, I recognized my childhood friend in Amy Beth McNulty's portrayal of Anne. If you're not familiar with either the books or the show, we can still be friends. Um, but know that it tells the story of an 11-year-old girl named Anne, spelled with an E if you please, who is adopted from an orphanage in Nova Scotia by Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert, a pair of closed-off but deeply kind middle-aged siblings who have built a sensible, pragmatic life of duty and hard work. Matthew and Marilla had sent word through a friend that they wanted to adopt a boy around the age of 11 to help Matthew tend to their Prince Edward Island farm called Green Gables. But somehow this message gets confused. And rather than a helpful young man, Matthew and Marilla receive Anne, a red-haired, dreamy-eyed, fast-talking, quick-tempered idealist who has a difficult history of neglect and abuse, a deep capacity for love, and a head full of relentless imagination, ideals, and aspirations. Against all odds, these three become an unlikely family, each one challenging and learning from the other as they grow into kinder and more compassionate versions of themselves. Central to the disasters, the triumphs, and the character development of this series is Anne's imagination, which lands her deeply in trouble almost as often as it saves the day. It's Anne's imagination that sees her through the years before she comes to Green Gables, picturing herself as Princess Cordelia, a beloved ruler of a kingdom of beautiful cherry blossoms, marble halls, and dancing rivers. It's Anne's imaginings of herself with beautiful raven black hair that lead her to purchase some faulty hair dye that leaves her orange hair splotched with patches of dull coppery green. It's Anne's imagination that makes her terrified to walk to school or to her friend Diana's house because both of those things require her to walk through what she had imagined to be the haunted wood. But it's also Anne's imagination 
that leads her to tackle some large systemic issues of injustice that she sees in her little community, be it the treatment of women, the ongoing problem of racism, the horrors of residential schools, or cruelty against members of the LGBTQ community. In her friendships, her family, her school, and her small town of Avonlea, Anne imagines a different kind of world, and in small incremental ways, acts to make it a reality. And here is my not-so-subtle segue into our real sermon topic this morning. I would argue that, like Anne, what we really need is a little more imagination, the ability to see a different kind of world and then act to make it happen. To see this a little more clearly, and with all due respect to Lucy Maud Montgomery and the creators of Anne with an E, we're going to turn to a more authoritative source on the topic and spend some time in the book of Jeremiah. I used to have a running joke with my friends from university that even when things were overwhelming, or we were tired and hadn't slept, or we were sick, or things just seemed unfair, we had something that we could be thankful for. At least we were not Jeremiah. To put him in the context of Israel's history, Jeremiah was a priest in Jerusalem during the final decades of the Southern Kingdom, when he was called by God to deliver a message. The kings of Judah by now were largely preoccupied with maintaining their own political standing and power through the maintenance of the status quo. I'm fine. You're fine. Everything is fine. I mean, sure. Rather than behaving as God's covenant people, they were worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. And maybe the kingship had become corrupted to the point that there was rampant injustice and exploitation of the most vulnerable among them. But God's temple was right there. He was present and endorsing the kingdom. A king from the line of David was on the throne just as God had always promised. They were God's chosen people, and so they were too big to fail. Judah's sense of normalcy, their understanding of self and reality were grounded in these assumptions about the temple and the dynasty, however corrupted those things became. Even the life that Jeremiah himself understood and participated in was rooted in this idea that as God's people, they couldn't fail. This ideology wasn't just isolated to a small group or just to the kingship. It was widespread and systemic. We see it in Jeremiah 6, verses 13 to 15. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. I'm fine. You're fine. Everything is fine. But of course it isn't fine. We see in the book of Jeremiah, and really in the whole history of God's people, that it's possible to become so comfortable in the status quo that we become numb to the painful realities of the present. Enter Jeremiah with an unpopular message, a call for the people of God to wake up and to engage with compassion in the reality in which they are living, a call to forfeit the narrative in which they are too big to fail, and to imagine what it looks like to be a people over whom God really does reign as king, to speak and to act against the injustice all around them, to be a light to the nations, to catch hold of God's imagination, his vision of reality, and then act to make it happen. The world of their own imaginings, the one in which they cannot fail, the one in which things are fine, 
the one in which injustice that doesn't affect them is injustice that doesn't matter, has real consequences. It will inevitably lead to falling among the fallen. Jeremiah warns that Judah is heading for destruction, that already the Babylonians are rising up and sending armies to lay waste to Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and remove the people from their home for 70 long years. And for 20 years, Jeremiah brings these warnings. And for 20 years, Jeremiah is ignored. And then Jeremiah watches and experiences the siege and destruction for himself. He witnesses the exile personally. Jeremiah, like the rest of the Old Testament prophets, steps into the scene as this odd, eruptive, excessively countercultural figure tasked with the not-so-easy job of waking up an apathetic and spiritually sleepy people. And he is not thanked for it. Rather, he is mocked and persecuted, even kidnapped and exiled to Egypt for a time by his own people. Do you see what I mean? At least we're not Jeremiah. And I don't even think Jeremiah would disagree with me here. If we look at his call in chapter 1, we'll see that Jeremiah himself was not so interested in being Jeremiah as we know him today. Chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. Now the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. This little interjection at the beginning of Jeremiah's response, ah, is often translated, alas, but I prefer to read it as an ah. Jeremiah knows, even before he starts, that this task that God has given him is going to be demanding and unbearable. If we peek ahead just a little bit, we can see why. Behold, says God in verses 9 to 10, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah is confronted here with God's imagination, with his vision of reality, which challenges and staggers and uproots all of our previous assumptions and interpretive categories. It requires that we are not the heroes of our own story. It requires that we confront our weaknesses and our failings and the deeply ingrained injustices of the world around us and feel the full weight of them. It requires that we say, I'm not fine, you're not fine, everything isn't fine. It plucks up, breaks down, destroys, and overthrows all that was once familiar and comfortable. And while we're going to get in a minute to the part where this isn't really a bad thing, it is a painful thing. And because these words come to Jeremiah from the same God whose words spoke the whole world into being, there's no escaping them or looking away. No wonder Jeremiah's first response is, ah. And this isn't the last time that Jeremiah responds in this way as he catches hold of God's reality. Alas, or ah, becomes something of a refrain for Jeremiah as he begins to see what God's imagination is like. It contradicts everything that he and all of God's people had always assumed until then about how the world works. And so Jeremiah confesses, Lord God, you've got the wrong guy. I can't do this. Find a grown-up new world that God is imagining that ultimately culminates in justice and restoration 
is too strange and too backward and too disruptive and too far beyond what Jeremiah is capable of doing. And I suspect that Jeremiah wouldn't have minded going back to the comfortable way that things were before, before God spoke to him. But God isn't really interested in Jeremiah's objections. Check out chapter 1, verse 7. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Ah. But then come the words that are transformative. Verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. I am with you and will rescue you. Everything that follows next depends on this assurance. God is doing a work of deconstruction that requires Jeremiah and all of Israel with him to live through the trauma of real loss, but he's not sending them into it alone. Let's look at Jeremiah's call again through this lens. God says, I formed you. I knew you, I consecrated you, I send you, I command you, I am with you, I will rescue you, I have put my words in your mouth, I appoint you. All of the action here, all of the work that Jeremiah is being sent to do is being done by God's initiative. It's God who appoints, God who calls, God who sends, God who speaks, God whose imagination is creating a brand new world marked by justice and restoration. Jeremiah's job is just to catch hold of God's vision and to speak. And God will use Jeremiah's words to pluck up, tear down, destroy, and overthrow, yes. But he will also plant and rebuild. Out of the ruin, out of the wreckage, he will bring about something new. We catch an image of this in Jeremiah 18, starting in verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him to do. Then the word came, of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? Like clay in the hands of the potter, so you are in my hand, Israel." I've never tried my hand at pottery, but I do like to paint. And invariably, part of my creative process is to announce dramatically after hours of work to anyone who will listen that I ruined it. The picture on the canvas never quite matches the picture that's in my head. This painting here was supposed to be a sunflower, and after a couple of days of muddling around and making a mess, I just gave up, and I scraped as much of the paint off of the canvas as I could so that the canvas would be smooth when I started again. But the funny thing is that after I had scraped off all of those layers that I had worked so hard to build, I liked it a lot better. The colors were brighter and the light was cleaner, and as much as I begrudged throwing away all of that work, I saw in its unbecoming the makings of something beautiful. This feels very much to me like the process that God is bringing Israel through, and the process of discipleship that God brings all of us through. All of us have an idea in our heads of what the world should look like, and then we work to make it happen. But we know that in life, as well as in art, the picture in our imagination doesn't always look like what actually happens. Or sometimes my imagination just gets it wrong, and in order for me to catch hold of God's vision for the future, 
to spend my energy on accomplishing the reality of his imagination. It requires that many of my ideas and suppositions are stripped away, refined, and replaced by new ones, so that even as I give over parts of myself to be buried, Jesus raises up in me new life. Like clay in the hands of the potter in Jeremiah, I am torn down and then built up and reshaped as it seems good to the potter to do. And I know that he has been as he has been faithful to do this work in my life and in your life and in the life of his people throughout history, he will continue to do so. As we continue to follow him, as we continue to prefer his imagination to ours, he will continue to work in us, scraping away those aspects of our lives and ourselves which keep us from him. Sometimes it's in our unbecoming that he makes us into something beautiful. For Israel, this unbecoming happened just as Jeremiah warned it would through the exile, the traumatic loss of familiar, comfortable Jerusalem. For us, maybe, this has happened over the course of the pandemic, and the disruption of our regular routine, and the loss of a world that feels familiar and comfortable. Globally, we have paused, and in that pause, we have listened and we've seen. We've seen the ways that systems of racism continue to ruin lives. We've begun to listen to the ways in which Canada as a nation has perpetuated generational trauma for Indigenous peoples. We've listened even to our own individual trauma, to those places of brokenness and woundedness that we maybe haven't allowed ourselves to slow down enough to feel or experience until now. These things aren't new, but we have felt them in new ways when we lost the familiar everyday story of, I'm fine, you're fine, everything is fine. And so it's appropriate, I think, even as we head into a new season of reduced restrictions and increased normalcy, to acknowledge that there is a real sense of grief and of loss and maybe some uncertainty in where to go from here. How do we move forward and start something new? This is the ah of Jeremiah's response. And like Jeremiah, we know that there isn't just a going back to the comfortable way that things used to be. We know and we've seen too much. Instead, there is an invitation for us to enter into the newness of God's imagination. This is the second part of the message that God gives to Jeremiah. It doesn't just overthrow and destroy. It also builds and it plants. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This covenant is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Even in their experience of exile and loss, even through their failings and betrayals, God has loved his people with an everlasting covenant love. He will remain faithful to his promises, and in the end, will establish a new Israel. This one won't be founded, though, on political power or independence but on a people whose hearts and minds have been captured by God's imagination. There was another word that God spoke in human history that disrupted and deconstructed. The final best word 
who also plants and rebuilds. A word who became flesh and walked among us in our experience of grieving and loss. This word is Jesus, who uproots and tears down, who calls us to die to ourselves, to give up everything that we have and leave behind our comfortable way of being to follow him instead, who invites us to have our imaginations captured by the kingdom of God, the topsy-turvy, upside-down new reality in which we lose our life to save it, love the ones who hurt us, and surrender our will to God's will. And because this word is himself the very God who spoke creation into being, there is no ignoring him or looking away. There's only following him in his death and resurrection. Alan Lewis, in his book, Between the Cross and Resurrection, says it this way, God's victory over death, as the Christian gospel tells it, is not a matter of smooth, ensured survival, but a new existence after non-survival, a quite different reality. He doesn't just uproot and tear down. He builds and he plants. Through the painful process of surrender, he creates and is creating something entirely new that conforms to his imagination. And then, like Jeremiah, he sends us into, a wor into the world to speak about this disruptive and life-giving word. Let's compare Jesus' sending of his disciples in Matthew 28 to God's sending of Jeremiah. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all of my commandments. Ah. And then come the words that are transformative. We don't go alone. All of the action is being done by God's initiative. All we have to do is catch hold of God's vision and speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. And I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. I want to invite you this morning to see that in this season of deconstruction and rebuilding, that there is so much scope for imagination. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are faithful. When we feel we are being torn down and overthrown, when we feel we are being rebuilt and planted, you are present with us through it all. Whether our walls are torn down or rebuilt into something new, we are safe in the hands of the potter. And Father, we ask this morning that you would use this season to make us into something new. Let our minds and our hearts be captured by your imagination and show us places where we can act to make it a reality. In our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, help us to catch hold of your vision for a different kind of world. And as we give over every day those parts of our heart which we have kept back from you, we ask that you would teach us to love in new ways and to serve in new ways and to see the world around us in new ways. Give us courage to imagine what the world looks like when you are reigning as king. And we will give all the glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.